So I've got a little story to begin with this morning. A couple of New Jersey hunters are out in the woods, and they're doing their hunting thing. I guess they have a gun or something like that, you know. And one of the hunters suddenly collapses. He doesn't seem to be breathing. His eyes roll back in his head. And so, of course, his friend, the other guy, immediately grabs a cell phone and calls the emergency services. And, um, you know, he's in a little bit of a panic. So he says, my, my friend is, is dead. What am I going to do? And so the way these emergency services operators are trained, very calm and soothing, the voice on the phone comes back and says, uh, just take it easy. First, let's make sure he really is dead. And so there's silence on, on, the, on the recording, on the, on, on the phone line, and then a shot is heard. And the guy's, voice, uh, the guy's voice comes back on the phone and says, Okay, I, I, I've made sure he's dead. Now, what's next? <laughs> that joke was announced as the funniest joke ever by a cast of a million people who uh, took a survey in 2002. You never know what's going to happen when you do an online survey, right? If you took an online survey of every single Christian in the world, if that were possible, and you asked them about the cross, how important is this? My guess is, I think I can pretty much guarantee that uh, the answer would be that the cross is pretty important. I wonder, though, how many would respond that the cross is the answer to the problems of the entire world now. That's the kind of case that Paul was making in our verse this morning, Romans 3, verse 25. My summary is simply this. Paul is teaching us that the cross is bigger and better than we often think. Bigger, better. First, bigger. First part of the verse, Paul writes this. Whom God put forward, referring, of course, to Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, Paul here is saying four things that uh, scale up the cross to God's size. He's expanding our vision from a somewhat human level, perhaps mechanical view of the cross to a majestic God-sized, God-centered view of the cross. He does it in four ways. Here they are. One, the cross is God-initiated. So Paul writes, whom, that is Jesus, God put forward. And this is an eye-opening truth that expands our vision of the cross because God put 
the cross forward. God put Jesus forward. It was God's initiative, not ours. God's solution. It's not even a sort of retrospective, reactive response to a human predicament. It is God put the cross forward, suggesting it is His own initiative according to His own plan in His own heart from eternity. This is His idea. It is not God's backup option after His first plan had failed. This is whom God put forward. The cross is an expression, therefore, of the love of God at a certain point, at a certain time, planned from eternity, not forced upon God, not forced upon Jesus, God-man, Jesus by God-Father. The plan of God, God put the cross forward. God is cross-shaped, if you like. God's initiative, too. Second eye-opening truth that expands our vision of the cross. The cross is God-satisfied. So there's this word, propitiation. Those of you who know the history of theology will realize there's been some discussion about the right translation for this word. I think this is the right translation, propitiation. It refers back to the mercy seat in the Old Testament temple. And propitiation is saying that this word means wrath-bearing sacrifice. If you don't get what that means, that's the same as wrath-bearing sacrifice. Um, Wrath-bearing sacrifice. Now, of course, this is saying the cross is bigger than we thought, not just because it's saying that, well, we don't like to talk about how God is angry, and we actually are going to this morning, and that makes us think about the cross in a bigger way. Not just that, though that is true, it is showing us that the cross is necessary, if you can use that kind of language, necessary in order for God to forgive. Often we think, well, God can just forgive us, but can He? How about if God is holy and we are not? How then can God just forgive and not undermine the ethical infrastructure of the entire universe. What the cross tells us is that is all solved, for it is a propitiation. Let me explain to you like this. I think it's a helpful illustration, though it is sort of human level. Say someone had uh, wounded you. They've hurt you quite badly and they've done you wrong. And you're struggling with this. You're feeling angry, of course, because they've hurt you. Say that person comes to your door. They knock on your uh, door in the student dormitory. They turn up at your house unexpected. And there they are, and they say, will you forgive me? Now, you have a choice at that moment. You can offer them forgiveness, or you cannot. If you do offer them forgiveness, you are then, in some way or other, bearing the price. Say they owe you money, literally owe you a debt, and you forgive them the debt. You are bearing the price, literally. 
Say they have hurt you emotionally. Similarly, you are bearing the price. Well, take that little illustration and expand it to a God scale. At the cross of Jesus, we are seeing God internalizing the just condemnation, the wrath, the hurt, if you like, in Himself. It is God satisfied, and therefore God can forgive. Not trivial, but the only possible means of God forgiving, if God is indeed holy. God satisfied. Three, God sacrificed. So Paul writes, it is by his blood. Again, Paul is very bold here. He uses a similar sort of expression when he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 when he says that God gave his own blood for the church, which not only teaches us that the church is infinitely precious to God. We should not allow anyone to tell us that this church or any other church is unimportant to the plan of God. If God gave his own blood for the church. But it not only tells us that this church is of, and any other church, is of that significance to the Father heart of God and to God himself, triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It also tells us that the cross cost God. Now, of course, we know that God is eternal, and so in that sense, God cannot die. But we also know that Jesus Christ is the God-man, and he was truly sacrificed by his blood. I remember once uh, listening to someone in a public forum asked why it was that he was a Christian rather than a Hindu or a Muslim or a person of another faith, what it was that made Christianity so special to this person as he was asked this question, this public forum, and different people were giving answers, and then he grabbed the microphone and he said this, I am a Christian because I worship the God with the scars on his hand. God is cross-shaped. That is the God we worship. For the cross is by faith. Paul says, to be received by faith. Now, we often trivialize faith, don't we? We think that faith alone means that uh, we are given excuses to do whatever we want. A helpful clarification comes from the Puritans who used to say, we are justified by faith alone but not by the faith that remains alone, that is, real faith by its nature will evidence itself in some fruit at some point, at some time, inevitably, for faith is a living agent that has, by the work of the Spirit, an inevitable result in fruit, in works. There is counterfeit faith in the same way there is counterfeit money. But uh, just because there's counterfeit money doesn't mean you don't want to be paid for your work. In a similar sort of way, just because there is fake faith that does not result in living Christianity, does not devalue the reality of real faith. Actually, it underlines the value of real faith, for otherwise, why would anyone bother to counterfeit 
This faith, then, shows us the utter sufficiency of the cross of Jesus. For faith is empty hands. Faith is saying to God, I receive. And therefore, it merely be by faith, there's no other agent here for which, by which we can receive the work of the cross. Merely by faith tells us that the cross is utterly sufficient. Why? It's God-initiated, God-satisfied, God-sacrificed, received by faith. I love the quote from G.K. Chesterton. He said this about Christianity. Christianity is the only religion that has ever existed that felt that omnipotence left God incomplete. You see, we worship the God who expressed His fullness at the cross and resurrection. Our God is not diminished by mercy or domesticated by compassion or decreased by sacrifice. No, the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength, for at the cross of Jesus, the true greatness of God is proclaimed. Like a king dying for his people, like a man laying down his life for his friends, the cross shows us a God who is not merely powerful, not merely powerful, but whose passion is to rescue his people, even at great cost. We worship the God with the scars on his hands. I have a very uh, good relationship with my mother-in-law, which I'm sure is more due to her patience than mine, and that of my darling wife, who doubles my joys, halves my sorrows, and triples my expenses. (laughs) But I I still enjoy uh, mother-in-law stories. In Las Vegas, a famous magician performed a particularly impressive trick. The crowd goes wild. The magician half-jokingly asks, any questions? The man in the audience replies, yeah, I've got a question. How do you do it? Everyone kind of chortles. The magician says, well, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. And that sort of well-known phrase, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. More laughter, a deep male voice at the back of the room after you said, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. Deep male voice says, well, in that case, can you tell me, please, my mother-in-law? <laughs> and so the cross of Jesus, when we make it human level, it comes as something that is simply an impressive magic trick, an ornament. But it is God's size. It is bigger than we think. Second is better than we think. So the second half of the verse, Paul says this, To show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. What does he mean by this? Well, what I think he means by this is that the cross is not only bigger, it is better in the following two ways, because it shows God's righteousness and it shows God's mercy. So it shows God's righteousness at the cross 
God's righteousness, that is his rightness, is displayed. How we need that message today in our world of deep suffering, of real tragedy. And Christians say that God is loving and good. How on earth can we believe that message? And Paul's answer is, at the cross, God's righteousness is displayed. Let me illustrate it for you like this. Francis Schaeffer was once sitting in a room surrounded by college students, and he was asked a question about suffering and hell and how can God be loving giving these realities. The many different answers you can give to that question, the problem of suffering, how God can send people to hell and also be loving, the difficulty of pain in this world. In other words, with all that we teach in the Bible about God's justice, with all that we experience in this world of difficulty, how at the same time can God be a God of love? And so the student finished answering, asking this question, expecting from the great man, Francis Schaeffer, a profound and complicated answer, listing all the history of Western philosophy and looking at arts and literature. And when they looked at Schaeffer, he was weeping. Now, my friends, we do have good and profound answers to those questions, and I can list them afterwards. We can blog about them, and that is important, to be able to have that kind of rational answer. But there will come a point in your life, if you have not already reached it, when you will need to find the place where you can see the tears of God in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where is God's righteousness displayed for a suffering world? At the cross. At the cross of Jesus, pardon is complete. Truth and justice mingle, wrath and mercy meet. Yes, and at the cross of Jesus, His rightness is displayed. How else can we believe that God is loving if we do not keep the cross at the heart of our faith? See, what we're seeing in our world today is people who do not have this message. Because they do not have this message, their choice is either to believe that God is not righteous or does not really exist, or to believe that God is righteous and they must enforce that righteousness by anger, vengeance, and even, as we see in our news every week, every day now, religious violence. But there is an atonement. There is a place where every evil... Every sin, every suffering is overcome by God Himself, and His righteousness is shown. So the cross shows God is right. The cross shows that God is merciful. 
Paul uses this word forbearance, his divine, that is related to God, forbearance, referring, I think, to Old Testament Israel. And so if you are a thoughtful scholar of the Bible, you'll read the story of what happened to Israel in the Old Testament, and you'll begin to wonder to yourself questions like these. How is it possible that God would rescue his people and not rescue perhaps other peoples, rescue his people when his people are so plainly equally sinful? Is this fair? And can the answers to that really be a lamb or a goat? What Paul is saying is that his previous forbearance, his mercy, is now shown to be right and fair at the cross. Of course, what that means for us as Christians is that we need not to refuse that mercy. So easy, isn't it, to think that uh, God's mercy is for someone else rather than for me, and so to carry our sins ourselves. We perhaps think that the cross is only relatively true. In our day of relativistic post-modernity, we just think it's true for someone else, but not true for me, true for you, but not true for me. I love the story of Ravi Zacharias that he used to illustrate the moribund confusion of post-modernity. He tells the story of two soldiers wandering around post-World War II London, and they've got lost, and they can't find their way, and so they're wandering around London, and they come across a general, and they decide to ask the general, where are we? The general is somewhat miffed at being approached. He's annoyed at being approached by such junior soldiers. And so the general says in response to their question, where where are we? He says, do you know who I am? And one soldier looks at the other and says, well, now we're in trouble. We don't know where we are, and he doesn't know who he is. Such is relativistic postmodernity. You cannot relativize the cross any more than you can relativize someone who gave their life to rescue people at a tragedy. It is not relatively important. Perhaps you just think it's old-fashioned. Russian author Dostoevsky says this about uh, Western society. The Western people have lost Christ. This is the reason for their decay. And we can add, as we re-find Christ and the cross and the resurrection, we will have renewed power for our culture, for our lives, and for the church. Obviously, a drunk man who bursts into a baptismal service and assists right in there that he be plunged into the water, and the minister rather unwisely agrees. He says, have you found Jesus? And he says, no. And he does it again. He says, have you found Jesus? The drunk man says, no. Finally, in frustration, the drunk man says, are you sure this is where you left him? And so when I say to you, the cross... 
It's easy, isn't it, for those of us who grew up in religious circles to think of some ceremony or some icon or some ritual that perhaps we have seen has had little effect or impact. And so we need to expand our vision of the cross to a God scale, that it is bigger and better than we often think. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we pray as we come now to your table that you would, through this visible word, the broken body, the shed blood, show us again the sheer majesty of the cross. Would you persuade us by your Holy Spirit that you, God, are righteous? That your blood displays before the universe a God with scars on his hands. Would you persuade us that it is effective, sufficient for life and godliness? So fill us with your spirit and help us to respond with repentance and faith. In Jesus' name, amen.